Brethren, I'd like to have a sobering conversation if we could. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2. I'd appreciate that if you would uh, follow along as we're studying God's Word today. I want to have a sobering conversation and I want to ask some serious questions over the course of the next 40 minutes or so. The first question I want to ask you all is what's going on in the world? Well, look around. What do we see? We see neighbors who don't know each other. We see division between friends and family. We see and hear mouths breathing lies and malice and slander and gossip and curses against God. We see drugs. We see sexual sin. We see adultery. We see violence. I've been alive for 22 short years. And I've seen kidnappings, I've seen addiction, I've seen families, my own family, rent not just in two pieces, but all and scattered to the wind by various different abominable sins against God. That's the world that we see when we look out in the world, isn't it? So I ask you, have you been paying attention? Or have you been like I've been tempted to do sometimes? And when you look out at the world, you shrink away. And you choose to not acknowledge that these things are going on. Choose to not take responsibility for these things that are going on. We can't. We have to look at this world and not shrink back and not flinch. We have to take an active stand against the sin that is in the world that, is, that are doing these things, that are causing this pain, that are causing suffering. When I say take a stand, what does that mean? You say take a stand, what does that mean? Let me ask this. Do we have the truth? Do we? We do. We have the truth. That's our weapon. That's how we wage war against all this. But do we actually go to war? Do we actually share the truth? The, world's, the world that needs what we have, and we know that on, on the level of knowledge, we know that, that the world needs Christ. That the world needs Christ. Look here in 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of of the whole world. Let me read that again. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, yes. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Now Jesus' sacrifice is not just for us, for the people that are here now. And it's not even it's not even limited to the children that are here, that, that the faith is being passed down to. It's not just limited to your children. And it's not just limited to those that would seek us out. Visitors or people that are in our lives that we're just waiting to ask that biblical question or that spiritual question. No. This verse says that Jesus' sacrifice was for the whole world. Who does that include? Everyone. Even those that we would, we would ask is that person ever going to ever be interested in religious things? Would they ever be converted? It's for the whole world. And what we have to do is we have to see this. And so I'm asking you all to snap to attention in this lesson and pay attention. Open your eyes and look. This isn't, this isn't meant to be an educational lesson about principle. This is a basic. I get that. I understand that. This is a basic. Like just what Josh preached this morning. This is back to basics. But I don't want you guys to agree with me doctrinally here. This is a persuasive message that is meant to cause us and stir us to put our armor on and go out into battle and do something. 
This is meant to unfurl banners and to incite change here in this congregation. That is what the purpose of this lesson is. And that, that concerted and consistent and persistent and that ongoing effort that I'm asking for and that the Lord is going to ask us for and, and to, to urge us on to, that was Christ's mission. That's what Josh preached about this morning. That He came to seek and to save the lost. Was it not His mission? Was that not why He came? He came for the whole world. So as a congregation, I want us to soberly look at this for this congregation, for each individual here as a member of Lakeside. I want to ask, do we have a wealth of spiritual blessing here? Do we? I see people nodding in the affirmative. Yes. Amen. We do. We have so many blessings. What what do we have? Do we have good teachers here that know the Bible? Absolutely we do. Do we have good encouragers? Do we have good supporters? Yes, we do. Do we have listening ears? Do we have counselors? Do we have people with wisdom? Do we have people with some gusto? Yes, we do. And some fervor and some passion and some love for the Lord. We have it all here. We got love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We have that here in this, these four walls. Some of us are stronger than others in these areas. And I understand this. And I have no doubt of this, but what I want to ask soberly is have we left some unguarded place? Is there some area that we might be lacking in? How strong? is our effort to share all these treasures that we've hoarded up in in this assembly and amongst ourselves. If we've got all these spiritual blessings, if we've got all the fruits of the Spirit going on, and that's great if we do. If we've got so much fervor and so much passion for the Lord, it's great. But are we sharing those? Are we going out to war? Are we just sitting there in our barracks, in our armor, waiting for something to happen? There's already a war outside. What are we doing? Open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 7. Open up your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 7. I'm thankful Brother Josh shared this passage with me. I was going to go a different direction with this lesson. I heard this passage and it smacked me right between the eyes. And it's so true. 2 Kings chapter 7 and verse 3. In this passage, a little bit of context. Divided people of God. We're in the northern kingdom. There's a vicious famine hitting them. And they, they what they want to do is these four lepers we're going to visit. They're starving and they're kind of between a rock and a hard place, so to speak. And so they reason with themselves that they're about to do something, uh, something really risky and something really dangerous. And we see in the midst of it, these four lepers, outcasts of society, are going to teach us something about ourselves and are going to teach us something incredibly profound. Look here. Second Kings chapter 7 and verse 3. There were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. They said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So the kind of reason, we're going to die anyway, so let's take this risk. Here, verse 5. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. Verse 6. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians... Hear the sound of the chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army. So that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. Verse 8, When these lepers come to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. And then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. So here they, they find all these blessings. They find all these things that they, 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 they could live like kings for a while. And they had all these blessings stored up. And they, they came upon them. But look here, verse 9. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. 
This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Listen, if we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. These men struck gold. The Syrians had been seizing and, and, and just ravaging the people of God, but, but, but they had been driven away. They'd been driven away by the Lord himself. And what they left behind was a wealth of treasure. And these lepers, they see that and they're so grateful for these treasures that truly the Lord had provided for them and had set out for them. And these lepers could have kept coming back more and more and have enjoyed these blessings on and on and felt the comfort and the peace and, the, and, and, and just the rest that comes with having all these blessings again and again. But no, these lepers, these outcasts, they say, we've been, we've been blessed. We've been given so much. We have food. We have water. We have, we, have, we have all this money, all this gain. And we're not doing right. Why? Because we're keeping it to ourselves. Because we're, keep, we're, we're trying to keep it in this little group inside of these, just the four of us. And yeah, I mean, they're sharing amongst the four of them. But what about all the rest of the house of Israel? What about all the rest of God's children, right? So this is a day of good news. So they say, this is a day of good news. Let's go and tell people. Let's let them know. Let's go to the people we care about and let's help them as well. Now look, we've been given a wealth of treasure. Not physical, greater, and not our own. We've been given grace and mercy and blessing upon blessing. And where does that come from? From the Father. From God. We all believe that, don't we? We believe that. And yet, if we're not actively sharing all these things that we're given here, all the things that make this congregation so amazing, if that's just happening amongst us, then we are not doing right. We're meant to be in battle. We're meant to be working. Are we doing that here? And I'm talking about, I'm just saying, evangelism, sharing the gospel, getting Bible studies with folks, trying to bring people, trying to bring people in, get it, letting them know what the gospel plan of salvation is. Are we doing that here? Is this something that we're particularly strong in? Are we, are we constantly hearing of brethren going and, 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 and doing outreach type stuff or Bible studies that are going on? I, I don't hear of a lot of this stuff. Is evangelism part of the culture here at Lakeside? To the point where, and I'm sure there are things going on, don't get me wrong, I know there are things going on behind the scenes, but I'm asking you honestly, is that a part of the culture here? Is it? Think about it. Don't be deceived, because I know that we could be much stronger than we are. And I know that there's going to be some objecti- objections and there's going to be some justifications for, okay, okay, okay no, we, we are. We're, 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 this, we're, at, we're at full capacity in this area right now. I promise you, people will say this. And there's objections and justifications that go along with that that say, these things are limiting me. No, they're not. They're actually enabling you. Let's look here. And I know everyone's limited in their unique ways, but let's handle them right, right at the outset before we even get into the meat of the lesson. I'm going to take all these major objections and we're just going to cast them aside. Let's do that. First, first excuse I hear, I don't have time. I work too much or I've got school. All right, I understand not everybody is an evangelist. I understand that, not professionally. And I understand that not everybody has a wide open schedule to go out and do evangelism. Let me put this to you. Acts chapter 8 verse 4, right? What happened in Acts chapter 8 verse 4? Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Are these, are these professional evangelists? Are these preachers in Acts 8 verse 4? This is everyday. Everyday individuals. They're just Christians and they go about and they're preaching the word and spreading the word. Everybody found ways in different arenas to share the gospel. Now, let me put this to you. The Lord doesn't expect you to quit your job 
to go out and start Bible studies in the community. No, no, he doesn't. Lord doesn't expect you to, to stop hanging out with your friends, even to, to try and drum up some spiritual conversation. The Lord doesn't even he doesn't demand that you quit your hobbies and your recreation. What he does demand is that in every single one of those areas, you are a Christian. At work, you are a Christian. Your first priority is the kingdom. You're not there to draw a paycheck. You're there as a servant. You're working heartily as unto the Lord. And you're there to spread the gospel with people. How many of your coworkers know that you are a New Testament Christian? How many of your coworkers know the gospel plan of salvation? Let me ask you that. They're all around you. You don't even have to seek them out. They're all around you. Those that are in school right now. How many of your friends from school know the gospel plan of salvation? That's earnestly something that we need to consider. Because if our excuse is, I have all these other things going on, that's not an excuse. That's an opportunity for evangelism. That's what that is. Look in Matthew chapter 9, 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Now, so I'm asking you, when, you ha- when you're hanging out with your friends, when you're at work, when you're wherever it is that you're spending your time with other individuals, how do you see those people? Uh, this will go perfectly with Josh's lesson. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through 38. Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost, right? So then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Where's the harvest? At school, at work, in our recreation, in our hobbies, when we're hanging out with our friends, it's over a, a dinner conversation. It's everywhere. The harvest is everywhere. It, it is not some magical unicorn moment that you're waiting for someone to ask you, hey, what must I do to be saved? It is in front of you every single day of your life. So this, I don't have time. I work too much. I got school. I don't have time to, to do evangelism or be evangelistic. That's not an excuse. That's actually an opportunity. Now let me. Now here's another one. Here's another one. Let's address this other one. I don't know the Bible well enough. Second Timothy two fifteen. Second Timothy two fifteen. People say I don't know the Bible well enough. I can't defend the truth because I, I just don't have a good grasp. I don't feel really confident explaining the Bible to somebody. Well, okay. I'll hear you out. I'm, I'm empathetic. There's been certain times where I've been talking about the Bible with somebody and I've kind of been on the ropes. I'm, I don't know what to say about that. I don't know how to answer that. Okay, that's fair. Second Timothy two fifteen. Especially in the, in the King James Version, I really like that rendition. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We have to get ourselves ready, right? More and more every day, we've we got to be doing Bible study. Personal Bible study. How are we going to tell people, man, I'd really, like really like to read the Bible with you. You need to get on this Bible thing. But you're not doing that. Well, if that's the case, then yeah, you're not going to be very good at Explaining the Bible to somebody because you won't understand the Bible either because you're not reading and studying the Bible on your own. Okay, so that's one thing. But here's another thing. Maybe you still are like, I'm not at that level. I can't explain all the, I can't refute premillennialism or I'm stuck on this particular issue and I don't know how to respond. There are many people who you can refer to or where you could invite people to situations where they could hear the truth about those things. And that is still being evangelistic. So the idea of, I don't know the Bible well enough, or I can't defend the truth, or I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm not sure if I would be, I would be confident doing that. Well, number one, study so you'll be confident, get confident, get comfortable. Number two, there are people who maybe are more confident who could, who could do that. So but again, that's still not an excuse. Just go ahead and try to start the conversation anyway. 
Here's the last, second to last one actually, and it's this one's actually the most infuriating for me personally, uh, and I believe it's righteous indignation that I'm feeling. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong here, but people say it won't work, or they maybe say in kind of a sideways way it won't work. They be well, what about this or what about that? Well, that well, what, this might throw a wrench in things. And I realize some people say things like that with a legitimate heart, and they're really trying to work that out. But a lot of people are looking to salve their conscience and say, nah, man, that just won't work. What do you mean by that? What do you mean when you say it won't work? Do you mean nobody's going to be converted? Okay. Nobody's going to be converted. So what? So what? What what does it matter if nobody's converted? Wow, okay, well, that's weird. I'm saying, what does it matter to whether or not we've fulfilled our command to go out and do evangelism on whether or not people are converted? Or, or if, if people are turned away, what are we doing here? 1 Corinthians 1.17, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 1.17, he said this. What was the reason that Paul went out? He said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Are we on board with Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.17? Is our goal, Josh said it this morning, to count wet noses? Is that how we're going to measure success in evangelistic work? By no means. By no means. We're measuring, our, our evangelism is sowing seed. That's what it is. The work of evangelism is com- accomplished when the seed has been sown and the seed has been thrown down and not when someone gets baptized. That's not the work of evangelism. That's the individual's response to the work. Yes, and it's important. And, and the Bible has many teachings about how important baptism is and how it's essential to salvation, how you must be baptized to be saved. He that believes and is baptized will be saved. I understand that. But I'm saying we are not measuring our success based on other people's reaction to the work. We are just doing it regardless of whether or not uh, I saw a meme. I think Marla shared it, preaching whether or not it brings a bunch of people in or whether it clears the whole room. And that's what we got to do. It doesn't matter how many doors get slammed in your face or how many friends that you have to lose or they have to walk away because they don't like what you have to say about their current life situations or etc. You do it. Because it doesn't matter if people respond favorably. What matters is that we do it. People say this, it's too awkward. Or I'm afraid. Now this is one that I really understand. A few of you probably know this because I'm such a social butterfly. I'm super socially anxious. Before I come into the foyer, I've got butterflies in my stomach the whole time. Whenever, every time I get up here, I'm having to uh, get myself ready during the song beforehand. And I, I made friends with those butterflies. And, I, and, and I, I do feel anxious sometimes. And I am awkward and goofy and weird. And I say things that don't always make sense. And you know what? I don't care. Because I'm going to heaven. Those little awkward moments. Jesus isn't going to come up there and tally those and be like, Oh, the, you, that was a weird interaction. No, that's not going to happen. I'm not worried about it. And you don't need to be worried about that either. It's too awkward. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Listen, this is a quote from a militant atheist. His name's Penn Gillette. This guy, I would classify him under the banner of being an anti-theist. This guy regularly just tries to shoot down God and, and tear down biblical principles. But this is what Penn Gillette said. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize or make converts. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not get an eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, an atheist who think people shouldn't proselytize and who just say, leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? 
How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe the truck was bearing down on you, well, there's a certain point where I just tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's what Pendulet said, an atheist. He, an atheist, said, I'm personally offended that more Christians aren't trying to convert me. You don't love me. You hate me. And that's coming from the mouth of a lost person. That's the message we send them when we don't talk to them. We're worried about making it awkward. How awkward is it going to be when we are being parted right and left and they're saying, you never mentioned him to me. How awkward is that going to be? Man, we can't have this. this can't, these excuses are petty. They're petty and they're childish and they need to be put away. All of them. We got time. We're going to make time wherever we are, whenever we are, however awkward it is. It doesn't matter. What, no, whatever. We're going to be prepared. We're going to study our, study our Bibles and we're going to be prepared. That's just what has to happen. I couldn't have said any better than Pendulette. You, you, you have to hate someone to not try and convert them. And that's, that brings me perfectly into this next point and into the main meat of the lesson, which is these three points here. Three big questions that are going to ask us, are we doing what we need to do in our lives, and, and, and how does this all measure up? And again, back to basics, but these three questions. Number one, do we love our neighbors? Okay, Matthew 12, 30-31. Matthew 12, 30-31, super familiar scriptures, super familiar teachings from Jesus the Christ, two commands that sum up our entire faith, right? Matthew 12, 30-31. And these two commands, they're totally tied together. They work together. Uh, Matthew, uh, Mark 12, 30-31. Mark 12, 30-31. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, Jesus says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. These two commands, they deal with and and they describe really a, a vertical relationship to God. Right? We report up to God. He's in charge of us, and we love Him, and we give praise to Him, but also it details a horizontal relationship to everyone. Our neighbors, right? Our, our neighbors, the, the, the people that are around us. And we have to ask, really, who is our neighbor? That's a normal question to ask. We, we've all got, well, a lot of us probably, have actual physical neighbors, but is that really what Jesus means when He says neighbors? Look in Luke 10 and verse 25. Luke 10 and verse 25. Now, Jesus and this lawyer are having this conversation about what it takes to get to heaven. Now look at how this conversation goes. Luke 10, 25. Behold, a lawyer stood to put him to the test. He's wanting to to see if Jesus is for real. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, or sorry, sorry, the lawyer says, what is is written in the law? Or yeah, Jesus responds, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Then the lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor is yourself. Solid. 28. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. All right. So we, again, we're kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the lawyer here. You're talking to Jesus and you're saying, what do I, what what do I need to do? And Jesus says, what do you think you need to do? And we respond with those two, two commandments, those two important, greatest commandments. All right. And Jesus says, you're right. All right. Who's your neighbor? Let's determine who's our neighbor right now. It's a challenging question. So the guy desiring to justify himself says to Jesus, who's my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer responds, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you, go and do likewise. In this story, the lawyer answered Jesus correctly. He responded with those two commands that summarize the entirety of the law. But he wanted to salve his own conscience. So he challenges Jesus and asks him, who's my neighbor then? He asks this, same, thing that, same things that we ask sometimes when it, I've, been, I've heard this. From the mouths of Christians when I'm having conversations about evangelism. Well, you know, I'm just waiting for an opportunity. You're asking, where's my neighbors? Who is my neighbor? You're like, like Josh said, you don't have a face attached to this idea of your neighbor. It's just an empty silhouette. You're just waiting to be filled one day magically. It's just, who's my neighbor? And, it, and you attempt to salve your conscience by saying, I just, I, I just hope somebody comes along that I can teach. They're all around you. They're all around you. You determine who your neighbor is by the way that you treat them and the way that you act toward them and by the ones that you show mercy. Jesus said the person who went to the broken man was his neighbor because he went to where he was and he drew near him and he picked him up off the floor and he showed him the right way. He went to where he was. So you then, the person that waits, the person that's waiting for others to approach you with a biblical question but never makes an effort to go where someone else is in order to reach them with the word. Do you see now where you are in this parable? Whomever is in reach, those are our neighbors. How many members do we have here? A hundred some? Right? About a hundred some members? Let me ask this, honestly. Again, there might even be some people right now in this auditorium who are like, nope, Lakeside's really strong in evangelism. Alright, let me ask you this. How come everyone in Somerset doesn't know the gospel plan of salvation? Legitimately, how come every single, I'm not saying it has obeyed the gospel. I'm saying how come, how come 50% of Somerset doesn't know the gospel plan of salvation? It's just a question for thoughts. If those two commands, love the Lord and love your neighbor, are 100% of the law, and loving your neighbor is doing stuff like this, going to where they are and helping them and picking them up off the ground, and that's 100% of the law, then how are we doing our best at 50%? We love the Lord. I don't doubt that. And, and, and I know that we have our moments where we show love to our neighbors. But again, we got to ratchet up this element. We're not getting to heaven on 50, 50% of these two greatest commandments. We have to show love to our neighbors. How do we do that? Jesus said, go and show them mercy. That's the one who was his neighbor. So he said, go and do likewise. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we go and do likewise? Now, the next little bump that we come across is, well, it's complicated. We just overcomplicate this whole thing in our minds of it's got to be this big sales pitch and all the possible scenarios. And you think, man, you know, I've got to work all this out. How's this all going to work? How's it all going to play out? I don't want it to be awkward. don't want it to be weird. don't want to turn them away. Man, I went to school for communication studies for four years and I still have extremely awkward bumps. I mean, many people have been witness. Awkward bumps in conversations, especially evangelistic conversations, walking on eggshells, etc., etc. And I'm never, ever perfect in a single conversation of those. But you know what? 
I, I do that in a clear conscience because I'm trying, right? And, and we just got to try. And, and, and it will be awkward and it will be weird and, it, and we, we might overcomplicate things in our mind, but when we simplify it, we can see that it's not about us. We can take the pressure off of ourselves because it's about Christ. So we got to ask, what, what is it going to take? What is it going to take to do this thing, to, to, to get the word to the world, to get the word out there, to help try and mend some of these problems that are going on? Again, that is 1 Corinthians passage, 1 Corinthians 1.17. Paul said, I want to emphasize something else from 1 Corinthians 1.17. He said, I was not sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And then he said, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. We often think all these wrong things about evangelism. We put too much pressure on ourselves. We worry about how we're going to act and what we're going to say and how all that could possibly be misconstrued. And, et cetera. and I understand we need to be diligent and we need to be patient. We need to be good stewards of the word. Don't get me wrong. We need to pay attention to how we act and behave within the will of God. But we can't be obsessed with us and, and giving the right sales pitch and, and having the, the debonair, the perfect smile at the right time. And You want to obey the gospel? That's not going to happen. It's going to be weird 99% of the time it's going to be weird. The religions of this world, that what they do is they draw people in with all this pomp and all this circumstance and programs and they convert them with sports leagues and laser light shows and fog machines and community and motivational speeches and feel good religion. But what are we going to convert them with? What are we going to convert them with? We, we, we don't need to, we don't need to do, salve people. We need to cut them. Hebrews 4 verse 12, the word of God living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God, that's what converts people. It's not anything that we have or anything that we do in and of ourselves. It's the word of God. Is that where your confidence is? Then you don't have that excuse not to be evangelistic. I don't have what it takes. You have what it takes. You have a Bible, don't you? You know the scriptures. You're living it. You're walking. You can you, you have reasons for doing that. You can share those with people. Those lepers in the story, they found a wealth of physical treasure. And they knew that if they kept it to themselves, that they are not doing right. Well, how much more then should we share the word? Romans 10, 17. No, nobody is going to come to faith except by this one, one mode. Nobody is ever going to come to faith except by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing... And hearing by the word of Christ. In these holy scriptures, we read about a man who lived and died by a message of peace and a message of liberation, of eternal life, conquering death, 1 Corinthians 15. We read of a man who did conquer death. We read of Jesus the Christ who defeated death. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that He gave His life, rose on the third day, appeared to the disciples, guided them into all truth, brought us here in this moment, in this congregation? Do you believe He's led us this far? Well, then why can't He lead us out into the community of Somerset, Kentucky? 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I'll remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. 
For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, Paul says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preach and so you believe. It is as simple as sharing that same message. So he preached. What happened? They believed. That's how it works. That is all it takes on our behalf. And we wonder if it doesn't work. Are you kidding me? You wonder if it doesn't work. It's the power of God unto salvation. It works. If we go out and we share the message, it will work. We just have to be bold. If, if not one soul came to Christ as a, for all of our efforts, if we went out and we mobilized and we went in the droves, and all of our friends knew the gospel, and everybody in our school systems knew the gospel, and not a soul obeyed the gospel, and all of our coworkers, and name it, and on and on and on, and not a soul obeyed, it would have worked. They would have known. And we could never say, they could never say, you never mentioned him to me. Why can't we do this? We can. And I know that. I know that we got people in here right now that have zeal, that have fervor, that have a love for God, that have all the fruits of the Spirit, that are active, that are, that, that are good with the Word, that know the Word, that study the Word, that live by the Word of truth. So we have everything in this congregation right now to do these things. We will see the kingdom grow. Because here's the last thing. Here's the last thing I want us to consider. And I think this will be... The, extremely powerful for us to consider what can happen what can happen if we just step out in faith matthew 13 verse 33 now and we've spent a long time and a lot of lessons talking about bad leaven and how leaven uh, is used as a metaphor for sin and how it's how the pharisees had leaven and how it was bad well here's some good leaven here's some positive leaven matthew 13 verse 33 we talk plenty about the bad leaven how it could spread so quickly and it can inflame but what about the good leaven in matthew 13 33 Jesus tells them this little, it's just a short parable, but it's got punch to it. It's got power. Listen, the kingdom of heaven, that's the church right now that we're in, is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This verse tells me that the kingdom is meant to spread. And it's not meant to spread in a tiny, like a trickle capacity. That when we're firing on all cylinders, it leavens. It inflates and it explodes. That's what the kingdom does. And so then I ask you, in Acts 2, were there people who knew they needed Christ there? In Acts 2, when Peter preached to them, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What what did they say? They said, what must we do? Men and brethren, what must we do? They wanted to know. Well, how do we respond to this? Peter responded, repent and be baptized for the, for the forgiveness of sins. 3,000 were added that day. That's Acts 2. It's the first sermon ever. 3,000 3, people, right? And then by Acts 4 and verse 4, there were around 10,000. How'd that happen? People preached. They opened their mouths. They were bold. They kept working. They didn't give up. They didn't make excuses. Well, then what about Acts 19 verse 20? The word grew mightily and prevailed. What about right now? How, how, how many Christians do we have now? I don't know. Honestly, I didn't look up the statistics, but I think it would be staggering to see that and compare it to the original 3,000 on Acts 2. And people will say, man, that was back then. Things are different now. Not too long ago, there were people in droves. You can read about this. You can find it online. Thousands coming out of their denominations coming out of the sin-sick world and becoming members of the New Testament church, the Church of Christ. That was happening, and that was real. But how was that happening? How did they do that? They found people. 
They just found people and they shared the word with them. They didn't care if people were disgruntled by what they had to say. They said the truth. Well, what's changed from, from then? Is it the message? No. Message is the same. Very same message, isn't it? It's always going to be the same. It's always going to be powerful. Is it our efforts? It's a complicated question. We often act like we're trying just as hard as they were back in Acts 2. And we often act like we're trying just as hard as they were back when thousands of people in America were coming out of their denominations and, and being converted and people were out in the streets and we were you know, making make effort. There were tents. There were you know, two-week, three-week, month-long meetings going on. We, we, and and, and I get, I'll say, there might be some people that are really still putting out that same level of fervor and zeal and, and action. And, and what I hear, and what I hear is, it's, it's, it's almost like, again, to salve our conscience, like, yeah, we're doing the same amount of effort. And I don't know, I'm not convinced that that's the case, that we were working like they were in Acts 2, because they were working like they were willing to die for what they did. Now it's like you gotta, you gotta light a fire under somebody to get them out in the streets, right? But, but, but then, but in those days, they were get, putting their heads on the gallows for it. But a lot of people say this. It's not our efforts. We're doing our very best. Okay, I'm I'm very evangelistic. I know I am. I'm doing my very best. And I'm and I'm challenging you right now because if you've ever used this excuse, then you're not doing your best. People say it's the culture. It's the culture, man. Uh, people just don't want to hear it anymore. We try, and people don't want to hear it. People say it's a different time now. It's not easy to do evangelism. All right, listen. It's not easy. I, okay. Again, I respond, so what? Should that discourage us? Does that make the gospel any less powerful? Is it the culture? Should that matter? Should that deter us? Should should we allow a wicked and an ungodly society to stop us from being righteous and godly and taking the right action? Should we, should we, should should a million doors slammed in our face prevent us from opening the million and one door? First, million and first door, whatever. Matthew five thirteen through 16. If the culture's godless, if the culture's godless, then what, what is our response? We don't shrink back, and we don't get in a shell, and we don't just bear up in, inside these four walls and say, well, we're okay in here. No. Look, we change the culture. If there's a godless culture, they're in need of some change. They're in need of some help. Matthew five thirteen through 16. Jesus never told us to be ashamed. Jesus never told us to shrink back. He told us that bettering of the world around us is our responsibility. Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You're the salt of the earth. You are. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown over, thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. You are. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If the society has gotten so ungodly, who's to blame? What's, what's the, what, is it possible that it's because we let it get this way? Who else is salting the earth? Who else is lighting the darkness? No one. Sinners are going to do what sinners do. They get worse. They go deeper into sin. They don't know any other option. So at least in some part, we have to take responsibility for that world that we're in. And so the solution is to not to blame 
the culture and to say, this culture is the reason I'm not out there doing the work that I know I need to do. No. The culture is the reason that we need to go out there. Man, I'm terrified. I'm terrified for my kids. I want to have them. But look at this. Man, it breaks my heart. I do not want for my children to have to see what I saw growing up. And the only way that that's ever going to be changed is by the Word of God and by the power of Christ. And those big movements can happen. And they have happened. And they're only going to happen if we decide to make it happen. And we work with the Lord. And He, he will bless our efforts. First John 2 and verse 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Everyone. We can change it. We can turn the ship around. Guys, I promise. If we make 1% of difference, then that's enough. If we just try, then that's enough. Look, I don't want us to go away from this sermon just feeling feelings of conviction and feeling like we need to make a change and like we need a revival and, and somebody better do something about that. We need to do something. I have to. We have to be willing to. And so what I want us to do right now in this moment, remember Josh's lesson from this morning. He said we need to identify the lost. We need to identify the lost. Have you done that? Or do you still have a silhouette in your mind of a face that needs to be placed in that category of that lost individual? What I want you to do right now is I want you to think of someone personally or someones, some people that you know personally and intentionally sear this person into your mind, this lost individual, and say, I'm going to do something about this. I don't care if it's awkward. I'll make the time. I'll put the effort in. This week, in this next coming seven days, let's do one of these two things, tangibly, tangible goals. Write it down if you have to. Either one, start, initiate a spiritual conversation with someone, a biblical conversation with the intention to keep working and keep going, not just to mention some biblical things, but to keep working, keeping their face in in your mind. Or number two, or you can do both. Or number two, invite someone to study the Bible with you. Let's just go through a gospel together. Let's just read an epistle. Let's read through Genesis. Let's have it. Let's let's study about God's authority. Let's do. Let's just study the Bible. We invite people to dinner. We invite people to play sports. We invite people to come watch different things on TV or hang out and watch movies. Why can't we invite people to study the Bible with us? It's not too awkward. It's not. It's going to it's going to take some some doing to get people to come. But that's what we need to do. So two goals. Two tangible goals that you can do. Spiritual conversation. Biblical type conversation with intent to follow up. Invite someone to study the Bible. Obviously with intent to follow up and actually do that. And so then what do you do after that? What do you do after the week's over? And you've check marked that little box and you said, You know what? Brother Cain was right. I, I haven't been doing this. And I don't know. And, and, and more importantly actually I just want to say this. God is right. I need to... I need to do this. And you, you put a check mark next to that box. You say, all right, I did it. Checklist done. No. We're not going to preach about this for a while. I think it's thoroughly been preached up till this point. Therefore, 
The responsibility is now upon all of you. So the effort, when you made this goal and when you've maybe achieved this goal, is to form a new goal the next seven days. Again, a notebook would be perfect for this, or sticky notes or something, of here's the person I'm working on. Here's what we've done. Here's what we're going to do next week. And just, just, just determine that. The four lepers were talking together. They were talking together. And they were together. And they said, we are not doing right. Now, I really hope that I've said everything tactfully. But I'm trying to do what, whichever one of those lepers spoke up and said, we're not doing right. I'm, I'm trying to get food to the prodigal children of God. Do you guys understand what I'm, what I'm saying right now? And I, I need you guys to be on board with me on this. And on board with God, more so than me. This is an effort that we need to make. Again, so this goal of, of evangelism, it needs to continue. It needs to, and we need to hold each other accountable. Now, what do I mean by that? We need to be like those four lepers. They talked about it amongst each other. And I'm not saying we need to sound a trumpet and say, boop, 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 here's my evangelistic effort for the week. Present that to everybody. No, I'm saying... We need to work that into our conversation, our everyday conversation with one another. Oh, here's, here's kind of what's going on in my life. And uh, I was talking with this guy the other day, and we got to talking about the Bible. And, and we need to be willing to talk, to talk about that. And we need to be willing to accept when people ask us, Hey, who are you working on right now? And, and not, not shrink back or feel awkward or feel pressured by that. We need to allow that to keep us accountable and to keep us convicted. That's how you foster an evangelistic culture in a congregation. That's what needs to be done. And another thing that we need to do, ta- talking about tangible goals, I know that I've been up here for a while, but talking about tangible goals, the last uh, one that I want to mention, the most Im- not the most important, but, but maybe the most important, is that we need to be praying, even in a hard prayer sometimes, for opportunities to share this with people. If you guys would allow me, I- I'd like to do that right now. If, if we could just stop for prayer, please pray, please pray with me. Our Father, our Lord, we come to you in prayer and in humility, approaching your throne, knowing that you will and you can provide the things that we need in order to do your will. Lord, we ask that we would cast aside all of our excuses and that we would clear our hearts and that you would make us clean and restore us and teach us and help us to to be active instruments in your war and, and workers in your vineyard and in your field and that we would do the things that you've given us to do, that we would love our neighbors, Lord. We ask that you would show us those people that need mercy, that we could identify those people and go and seek and find them and help in the effort to bring them to you, to reconcile, to, to, to bring them to the light. Lord, we know that that is our responsibility. And for the, for the areas in which we fall short, we ask for your forgiveness and patience and long-suffering. And we just ask that you will light a fire in this congregation to go out and to seek and to save the lost, Lord. To show them your precious Son, Jesus, who gave His life for us. It's in His name that we pray. So that's that's the lesson. And that's this is something that I've had on my heart for a long time. And I thank you all for listening. And I'm more than happy to talk with anyone in the foyer about any of the things that I've said. And so, what I want to do now is I want to extend an invitation, as many are accustomed. And it may be, in fact, that you you look in your life and you see that you haven't even started serving God. So all this talk about going out and changing other people, that's not for you. You need to, you need to be changed yourself. 
You need to obey the gospel. And that's when you can begin helping other people to see the light. Until you've done that, you can't say to anyone, you need Jesus. You don't even have Jesus. And so the, the invitation is for you to be baptized into Christ. I'll be standing right over here. But for those that have heard this lesson, and it has caused a bit of squirming in the pew, and it may have pierced your heart and it might have cut you to the heart, brother or sister, you don't need to be, you, you don't need to be downtrodden. Because you've been given another blessing, yet another spiritual blessing. A time and an opportunity and patience from the Lord to work in this area and to continue to strive for godliness in this area and to help. And I can tell you personally, especially, to, and I'm talking specifically to those individuals that are saying, I don't do my due diligence in this area. I'm standing up here and I want to be very clear. I am on no high horse. I've had moments where I froze up. I've had moments where I wish I would have gone back and said something. My friend Matt lost his life before I could tell, tell him the entire plan of salvation. And I was, I was trying, but I had kept my mouth shut, and I hadn't been as bold as I needed to be more times than probably I should have, and I blame myself for that. I do. But now, we have an opportunity to set this fire and to start this fire, and it starts with you. But we have to make the corrections that are necessary. Brother, sister, if you haven't been living faithfully to God in this way, or if you just need encouragement in this area, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.